Okay, heads up, my creative brothers and sisters. Not Real Art now has an exclusive membership program designed just for you. If you're an artist or an art lover and you appreciate what we do here at Not Real Art and you'd like to join the family and help support the cause and celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it, please consider becoming a member today. Your membership will help support our work, such as funding our artist grant and production costs for all the programs and content we produce. Your membership will also help us stay independent and commercial free. And when you do become a member, you'll get valuable benefits and perks we think you'll find very cool. And becoming a member is super affordable. Just $5 a month for artists and $10 a month for art lovers. So to become a member of the Not Real Art family, simply go to notrealart.com, click on membership to sign up, and help us celebrate and elevate the creative culture we love and the artists who make it. Thank you. Warning. The Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough. My co-host, the esteemed Man One, is on assignment today, so it's just me here in the booth. I want to thank you all for supporting us and continuing to listen. We do this for you. And I want to talk to you a little bit about our show today because the next couple of episodes over the next few weeks are going to be a little bit unique because on October 24th, we're the media sponsor for a show that Crew West Studio, our mothership, is producing called Indivisible. And it's a political art exhibition that, like I said, we're producing and it's a great show. It's going to be a great show. So definitely want you guys to check it out on October 24th when it goes live just by going to indivisible2020.org. But the whole reason we're doing Indivisible, which again is a political art exhibition, was to address stuff going on in our country right now. You know, obviously it's been a hell of a year. And certainly after the murder of George Floyd, we, I think like everybody, were thinking about, well, what could we do to help, you know, make a difference or help address the conversation, add some value to the conversation and, you know, be a positive voice in what has been a pretty challenging year. It's only going to get more challenging over the next few weeks as we come into the election and depending on how things play out over the next few weeks and months as we sort out the votes and see who the legitimate winner of the presidential election is going to be. So anyway, I mean, we decided many weeks ago that we thought that given how divided the country is and divided people seem to be, that it would be interesting to curate a show that would address some of these issues. And so we asked our friend Karen Frito, who is a political artist, 
who's done some incredible work. I mean, she's got death threats for her work. I mean, she is on the front lines, no doubt. But Karen also happens to be a Not Real Art grant winner from 2019. And so we think of Karen as being kind of in the Not Real Art family as one of our grant recipients, which, by the way, if you're an artist listening and you haven't applied for a 2021 grant, be sure to do that. But Karen and I started talking about you know what we could do. She came up with this amazing idea for a show called Indivisible, sort of exploring what it means to be indivisible today. Many of us grew up stating the Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, saying that we're, you know, indivisible, one nation under God, uh, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Turns out that's pretty aspirational. We've always been very divided and we're still divided today more than ever, it seems. And so we thought it'd be great to you know, have a show that we could have some great artists come together and explore what uh, Indivisible means these days, what it means to be divided, what it means to be united in this country today and even around the world. And so uh, Karen has been a great partner and has been curating this show. She's been working with us and our partners at Sugar Press Art to curate, I think, what is going to be an incredible show. We've got some incredible artists, Andrea Arejo, Linda Leike, Gabe Galt, Edward Culver, John Mark Edwards, Kaylin Campbell, Kay Brown, Man One, Leroy Johnson, Ted Meyer, Aaron Yoshi, Miles Regis, Anna Stump, Linda Vallejo, and Meredith Vandenberg, who are all gonna be in the show. And so Karen's been doing this great job of curating. We've got some amazing artists and, you know, Sugar Press has been an incredible partner. They're going to be creating prints around much of the art in the show that you can buy. As part of the show, we thought it would be great to have the guests, you know, on the podcast or the artists on the podcast as guests to talk about their work, talk about the show, just talk about the state of our union. And so the next few episodes of the podcast are going to be conversations with these artists. All these conversations were done remotely uh, over the interweb. It was technically challenging at times, but we were able to pull it off. And so we've got, you know, Leroy Johnson coming up. We've got Linda Vallejo, Man One. We've got Mary Sherwood Brock, Joshua Waddles, uh, Karen Ferrito, Ted Meyer, Aaron Yoshi, Kaylin Campbell, all who are going to be guests on the show. And so we're thrilled about that and want to continue to promote this show. The show is going to hang virtually until the inauguration. And, you know, so you'll be able to go to indivisible2020.org to access the show and look at the art and experience the art. But we're going to have a Zoom reception opening on October 24th. So if you're hearing this before October 24th, please come to our opening Zoom reception that evening where you can hear from our artists and ask questions, so on and so forth. But like I said, the art itself, the exhibition itself will hang until the inauguration. And oh, by the way, we want to make the Indivisible show an annual event because this is a ongoing conversation. Certainly building unity in this country is a long-term project, 
that, you know, we're fully aware that one show is not going to, you know, solve our problems. We need to keep having these conversations. We need to keep talking, speaking truth to power and challenging people to think more broadly and more deeply about these issues. And so Indivisible is a show that we hope to do year over year. This is our first year, Indivisible 2020. So definitely go to indivisible2020.org and check out the show. I want to, you know, shout out to Karen Ferrito, who has been curating the show. She's been doing a powerful, amazing, incredible job. Uh, I want to shout out to Sugar Press Art, one of our key sponsors in putting this show together. Many of their artists are featured in the show. And then, of course, Not Real Art is the media sponsor. So you'll be hearing from us about uh, the show moving forward. So definitely check it out. On today's episode, we've got political artists, Linda Vallejo and Man One. And this is a great conversation between two powerful artists here in LA, both of whom have done incredible work addressing injustice in our world and in our community. And certainly here in LA, given their Mexican heritage, uh, they had a very rich dialogue between them, which I was, for the most part, a fly on the wall in terms of just listening to what they had to say, which, you know, I think so many times we just need to shut up and listen and learn and uh, listen to what uh, people are saying and talking about and and, and try to understand people's experiences because Linda and Man One, their lives have been very different in many ways, but they share a lot of the same struggles, but certainly as artists, you know, have a lot to say and have that uh, critical discerning eye that artists have. And uh, of course, their work in the show, the Indivisible show is going to be fantastic. But without further ado, let's get into this conversation with the one and only Linda Vallejo and LA's own Man One. Linda Vallejo, man one, welcome to Not Real Art. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you guys on the Not Real Art podcast. You know, what brings us here today is a show that you uh, both are exhibiting in that Crew West Studio is producing and Karen Frito is uh, curating. And the show is a political art exhibition, a virtual exhibition called Indivisible. What attracted you to being a part of the show besides Karen's invitation? I mean, what about the idea and the notion of indivisibility attracted you? What does indivisible mean to you, Linda? Well, I think it says in the um, in the mission statement that united we can accomplish, united we can get things done, united we can make things happen, a united voice, a united front, the idea of uniting all nations, all creeds, all colors, all genders, all races, all orientations always interests me because the intersection between that philosophy and the actual work, that's a, that's, a difficult, that's a difficult road to hoe, and you have to really spend a lot of time thinking it through. What does that image actually look like? And also the idea that you know now, oddly enough, sociopolitical images uh, is being considered in a higher level than it ever has before. Sociopolitical image 
has its place, but it has its place, if you will. And now, because of the, you know, the, everything that's going on, I mean, this is just really a volcanic action here. Everything's going on at once. Sociopolitical image finally has a, a real place. And I think it's time for those of us who are committed to sociopolitical image to step forward. And in this case, to be indivisible, to be united and show the best that we've got about what it means to have not only a viewpoint about beauty, not only to have a viewpoint about history, not only to have a viewpoint about technique or artistry in itself, but also to have a viewpoint about what we think about what's going on in our world today. Yeah. To add exactly what Linda said, to add to that, you know, the name of the show kind of intrigued me too, because indivisible is a word that I've been using once a day since I was in first grade, because when we say the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, at the end of it, you say Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, United States of America, whatever. And then you say indivisible. I remember the words in the Pledge of Allegiance, Uh you just recite them like, you know, they just become something you just memorize and just say. You don't really, when you're in first grade, second grade, fifth grade, <laughs> you're not really paying attention to what you're saying. And all of a sudden, you know, later on, you're in high school, you're in college, and you're thinking about these things that you pledged to, that you be- mm-hmm. that you now believe in, that you've been indoctrinated mm-hmm. with. Yeah. And you start realizing the language that's been placed in front of you, the language that you've been asked to believe in, and you realize that you've been indoctrinated into believing a certain thing, right? And so all these years, you've been told that we're one country, that we're one people, that we're all Americans, right? Yeah. And then, you know, as you grow older, you realize, wow, I didn't get to walk into that restaurant because the color of my skin or, no, you, or you see what's going on in the country right now with people divided left and right. Mm-hmm. And you wonder like, wait, so was all that just bullshit? Like all that stuff that, that mantra that I had to say all these years, the America that they wanted me to believe in, like, is that all just BS? And so all that questioning starts happening as you get older, and especially being a Latino, where you're just not represented. We make up, what, 50% of LA and- Let's do it, very close to it. Yeah, very close to 50%, you know, 40-something percent. We're not anywhere in Hollywood. We're not, our faces are on, on the screen, even though we build Hollywood, we clean Hollywood, we take care of all the Hollywood kids and there's so many like nannies and gardeners and drivers and laborers who work in this film studios. You know, my dad worked in the movie studios for like almost 30 years. Doesn't matter, like we're invisible. All of a sudden you start realizing all these things and questioning, well, what what does this country really mean for me? Do I belong in this country? Is it just all wordplay? So for me it's been always important to to speak about my point of view and to you know obviously people say well you know being political but what is political right i think uh, i heard one time uh, an artist say that you know all art is political because even if you decide to do a landscape you're deciding not to be political therefore you're being political that's kind of how i feel about it and so when this show came about too bad we can't do it in person and and, and have an actual hanging exhibit like like we used to back in the day you know a year ago <laughs> but it's fine you know it'll reach the masses it'll, everyone's on their computer anyway so this is like one of my first it's not my first but it's one of the few fully online exhibitions that i've been a part of but I'm, I'm happy to be part of it you know so i just i jumped at the opportunity when karen called me so yeah 
indivisible under one nation. Exactly. Indivisible under one nation. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of uh, research about where Latinos, uh, where Mexicans were, where Mexican Americans were, and where Tejanos were uh, in the late 1800s and the early 19th century. And uh, one of the things that's come for me has been the idea of uh, unskilled workers versus essential workers. And I kind of think that now's a really great time to begin using different words to describe people. I think language really helps us. Yes. Uh, or deters us from moving ahead. So that if one thinks of oneself as unskilled versus essential, just that language itself can change a political viewpoint or a, socio, a sociopolitical viewpoint or position or attitude towards people. That's kind of what I've been looking at and studying. No, that's a great point. Absolutely. I mean, we built the railroads. Yeah. 70,000 to 100,000 Mexican, Mexican-Americans and Tejanos were on the railways, building them all the way from Texas, all the way from Louisiana, all the way to uh, the Southwest, into the Southwest and into California. My whole contention about that is that we are an essential building block to America, to the United States and what the United States has become. We are essential to that history. And that's what drives my work and sort of, focusing on Latinismo in my, in my, in my image. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question that you ask. I mean, you know, what are we asked to, why are we asked to make oath? And oath is a serious thing for, especially for a little kid. But when you said that, I thought to myself, we're asked to make oaths in all kinds of arenas all the time, each and every one of us, unbeknownst to ourselves, we make oaths to what all kinds of uh, systems that we want to be a part of. We make dedications to them. We, um, it's a matter, I guess, of choosing what systems you want to be a part of or what systems you want to bring, bring awareness to. Because I think about, you know, the Catholic Church and all the oaths you have to make in the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots of it. Just tons and tons. Dogma, dogma, dogma. Well, that was, that was the other part of it is I went to Catholic school from first grade until I graduated from university. So I went to... Many years of Catholic school. How come you didn't become a priest? (laughs) I know, right? They're setting you up. Why didn't you become a priest? What stopped you? I never felt that that pressure, actually. And it's funny, the the point I was going to make was just kind of on on those lines, is that the more I went to Catholic school, the less I believed in the religion, but the more I believed in my faith. And that's kind of how I um, evolved, because I went to Catholic school elementary school for eight years, very small, had a good time. It was all great. Went to uh, St. Francis High School. So it was a Franciscan high school. So all the priests, you know, wore the, the robes and, and it's all about piety and humility. And, and I had some really great priests, actually, who were teachers and stuff. It started, the conversations in high school started being more about, it wasn't really about the dogma, but it was more about the spirituality of Catholicism. And then when I went to college, I went to Loyola Marymount, which is a Jesuit university. And the Jesuits, you know, are the troublemakers of the Catholic church. So there I I ran into all kinds of professors who were, if they were wearing their little priest thing, I wouldn't think they were priests, you know? So it always expanded my mind. I mean, I'm glad I went to to those schools and I'm glad I, I, I learned all those things. But like I said, it really opened my it opened me up to faith and to more about on that side of things and less about 
the commandments and going to church and doing this and doing that, it just became more important about knowing that I have my faith in, in, in God, my faith in people, my love and respect for humanity. You know, all that became way more important than being able to, to recite a verse in the Bible or something. You know? How would you correlate that? Like when you said that, it made me think about, you know, the older I get, the more I read the newspaper and the more CNN I watch and the more Fox News I watch to see what's going on really out there, the less faith I have or the more faith I have in, in democracy, but the less faith I have in the institution of government. And it kind of kind of rings the same bell in the sense that, you know, you know how government functions, you know, that it's pretty has a lot of problems it uh, it uh, wastes a lot of money. And yet I still have a real faith in um, the United States and in d- democracy and in the vote, regardless of what's going on with all the questions now. But when you said that about the Catholic Church, it kind of reminded me of the same thing. You grow up and you get real. And yeah, suddenly yeah. sociopolitical response is based on a real understanding of experience, a real experience of what it means to be alive and within democracy, within a, what a religious faith, et cetera, et cetera. No, you're is absolutely that right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how I feel about it. It's The institution has been totally soured for me um, over the years. There's no way that you can tell me that the Catholic institution is some really important, has some kind of sanctity or whatever anymore, because we see all the stuff that's happened with kids in church and pedophilia and all that kind of stuff. And the stuff that's happened, you know, over the centuries with the, with the religion. But again, this is kind of a, the dichotomy, right, of being Latino, because all my family is super religious, very Catholic. I would think so if they sent you to Catholic school yeah. for 12 years straight. Yeah, and so, like, you know, my dad my dad could, could care less about going men, to church. Men don't have to. Men but, don't have to, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah, of course not. Men don't have to. Women yeah. have to. Women yeah. have to, yeah. Again, again, yeah. women. <laughs> but men get to be the priests. But, you know, my, my grandmother, you know, rest in peace, um, she was super devout my mother-in-law super devout my 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 mother very devout it's this thing where you especially now with the politics you run into these issues sometimes with people because they're all of a sudden they're talking conservative viewpoints right that's being triggered because of their their faith 14 mm-hmm. percent of all latinos in the nation voted for trump yeah 14%. It started out at 35, but then they, they actually did all the numbers. It's 14%. We figured that's, uh, what, Miami and Arizona? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some of Texas, some Texas, Miami and Arizona, because California, you know, is definitely not going to be voted. So yeah, but, 14%. You know, that's you know, 15 I, out of every 100 people. You know, I've, I've had to cancel a bunch of my family. Not a lot, but a few cousins who are out there and stuff like that because they're Trump supporters. They consider themselves Christian, and I'm like, well, pro life, pro life is what's got that. That's the division point for Latinos right, right. is pro life, and that's where they have this choice between politics and religion. Right. And like you say yourself, devout, 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 devout. Yeah, uh, then, I quit. I quit the Catholic Church at 15 and never went back. Yeah, that's probably smart. <laughs> I quit it at 15 and went into Indigenous America instead. Right. And did that in the late 70s and early 80s before it was kosher to be considered indigena chicana. Yeah. It's still not. It's just now beginning to be okay, kind of, sort of. But you can't really practice it. You just have to wear the clothes. 
Yeah. But you can't really practice it. You just have to wear the clothes. You, you can wear all the jewelry you want, but don't be talking about. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's a, it's still a difficult place to be, but that's how I raised my kids. Did you raise your kids in the Catholic Church? Yes and no. They ended up going to, they went to public school their whole life until high school. I have three kids, uh, two boys and a daughter. And my daughter, my daughter absolutely hated uh, Catholic school. So she was out of there less than like in a year. And then my boys really, I was really, because we didn't really grow up. I didn't really teach them, you know, the whole doctrine. I didn't indoctrinate them the way I was indoctrinated as a kid. But they really took to the high school and they, my boys loved it. It was really interesting. I can see, you know, we're kind of like, uh, what do they call them? Non-practicing Catholics or Catholics light. I don't know. I don't know what you call yeah. it. But. So there's some things in the faith that they, that they picked up on. And one of the interesting things actually has been because of this whole pandemic, a lot of things have happened in my household, which I won't get into all of them, but some health issues and things like this. And we can't see each other physically, right? My daughter, my mother-in-law actually came down with cancer earlier this year. And so we, we couldn't visit her and we couldn't see her because of the whole COVID thing. My daughter, who's the one who's the least Catholic of all my kids, she said, you know, why don't we do a rosary like every night on a Zoom call with grandmother? Because she knows, she knows that my mother-in-law really loves to practice her faith and, and do read the rosary and stuff like that. So we started doing this rosary thing every night and it really grew and a bunch of the family started joining in. And it was really interesting because it really be, didn't really, it, yeah, it was about the rosary at first, but it really became just the catalyst for us to get together every night and talk via Zoom and stuff like that. And so it kind of became a really interesting thing. And along with that, my wife has been putting candles on the kitchen table, a different candle every night, you know, uh, like a saint candle or something like that. And so you can imagine how many candles we've gone through. So I have a huge collection now. Instead of just throwing them away, I started collecting them in my studio. And so that's going to be part of my next body of work coming out of this pandemic is I have a whole series of paintings and, and works that are going to be based on this whole experience, which has been very surreal for me in a lot of ways and trying to just figure it out for myself. But yeah, it's been interesting, you know. Earlier you were talking about this shift away from organizations more to yourself, whether it's the church or government, right? The phrase power corrupts, uh, absolute power corrupts, absolutely comes to mind. This note, you know, it, it's the, speaking for myself. The one thing that they both gives that gives me hope is the human spirit. I really you can't, you know, when it when it's activated and when it's realized to its fullest potential, the the human spirit can can do great things. And I I hope right that we get to a point where we are able to mobilize and organize around certain values, certain things, and for ourselves, not for government, not for a church, because this idea of indivisibility, as I've realized later in life, maybe uh, certainly not as a kid. Was, was always aspirational, right? It never was true <laughs> in that, you know, in this country anyway, right? You were divided either because you were a colonizer or a settler and, and then there was the indigenous people that lived here. Then maybe you were divided on whether you were a free or slave. 
you were divided, whether you were male, female, you know, women couldn't vote because they weren't landowners, what have you. Then you were divided because of maybe you were Republican or Democrat. Then you were divided whether, you know, maybe it was economics, you know, you, you had money, you didn't have money, but education, you had education, didn't have education. I mean, this idea of indivisibility has always been aspirational. We've never, we've always been divided on these different uh, lines. And yet it is, the reality is day to day, practically in our local communities, we are very divided. But in fact, we are all together on this planet called earth. And so as divided as we are maybe practically day to day in a little, little ways, we're, we're very much united in the, in the fate of this planet. You know, in Linda, one of the things that's really been interesting in terms of your journey is that you've, unlike a lot of Americans, you've traveled, you've lived various countries, various places on the earth. And, and Americans, many Americans, I remember reading a long time ago, one out of three Americans had a passport, one out of three. And I don't know if that's still true, but I think a lot of Americans haven't traveled. I often joke that we have an island mentality uh, in this country. And we tend to be afraid and we tend to be biased against things we don't understand and we don't have experience with. How has not just being a woman of color, but but being a woman of color that has traveled the world, right? How has those how have those experiences traveling and living abroad impacted your view vis-a-vis our body politic here in this country and your artwork and this idea of indivisibility? I think that you're right. I think indivisibility is an aspiration. I don't think that humanity is really capable of seeing itself as a as a as a as a species that we are a human species and we just happen to have subtle differences. It's like fish in the ocean. There's many different types of fish, but they're all fish and they all live in one place together. But even in nature, you know, fish eat each other. You know, there's there's violence in nature as well. There's, you know, there's pecking order. There's the hierarchy. I don't really believe that humanity is capable of peace all the time. I don't believe that it's capable of indivisibility. I've experienced both. Uh, I went to middle school in Montgomery, Alabama in the 60s. So I experienced pretty harsh racism as a young girl, as a young girl. And I've lived in a lot of places and had opportunities to see people at work. You know, people, how they actually function. Uh, my final philosophy through all of that is just basically a one-on-one. I believe that it's best not to feel that you have to solve the problems of the world. And you can talk about them in your art. Of course, you can talk about them in your poetry. You can talk about them in your novels. You can talk about them in film, et cetera, et cetera. But to take on the difficulty of inequality from a world point of view is would would break you with stress for myself and my own path is one-on-one so my goal is to be respectful of an individual when i meet them regardless of their gender or race or creed or color or age or orientation you know to be respectful because every every individual must face their own life and face their own death and uh, you know i'm not here to judge i'm just here to try to get along to coin a phrase uh, in terms of my art, you know, I've been involved in the Chicanx, Latinx movement for about 40 years now, and I, I, call, I have what I call my intellectual property, which is all the experiences and knowledge and study and travel that I've gathered over a 40-year investigation I like to study. 
a lot of my work comes out of right now data. I'm doing a lot of data work. From that experience of studying my own culture, if you will, I mean, before that I studied Egyptology, before that I studied the Greeks, before that, you know, I had, I, I went to high school in Spain, traveled all throughout Mexico. I mean, I enjoy all, I enjoy all cultures. That's part of the joy of being a human being on this planet is you can enjoy many cultures and see the similarities and the differences and enjoy all of that. But after 40 years of the images that I'm making now just sort of welled up inside of me. And I have so many brown ideas. I really don't know what to do with myself. I have a lot of brown ideas. They're still coming. And as long as they're coming, I'll continue to do them. One day the faucet will suddenly start dripping and I'll go, well, I guess that portfolio is finished and I'll go back to the kinds of paintings that I was doing before, make them all Mexican, hit the fan. It hit the fan, boy. You know, so I didn't choose to be sociopolitical. I don't think you can actually do that. I think that you have to develop intellectual prop, what I call intellectual property based on experience, knowledge, belief systems, study, study, lots of study. And then after a while, if you're lucky and you're dedicated to it, the image will in itself appear the kernel of the image will appear. And then it's your job as an artist to morph those ideas into multiple uh, multiple form, into multiple forms. The example that I use is when 9-11 hit, everybody started making American flags. And I just didn't feel it. But I collected a lot of materials around 9-11, lots of photographs, lots of newspapers. And I still haven't made my 9-11 piece because it just hasn't come to me. And I wasn't going to make the American flag because it just seemed an easy fix. And I'm really not the easy fix type. That's not what moves me. It's about coagulation of idea over decades, over decades of time to figure out what's just right. So I didn't choose to be sociopolitical. I just became sociopolitical as a natural, organic process. And I think that that's the kind of work I believe for myself that that is the kind of work that has a, a larger statement to make. And I mix in humor with it, of course, data, historical information to make it so that it has meat, you know, a real something you can really sit down and enjoy digesting, as it were. So I'm not a romantic. I love it's kind of like I love humanity. I love the planet. I love everything about being alive, being a human being. But much like what we were talking about earlier. Even though as I grow older, I have less and less faith in humanity in terms of its ability to live indivisibly, I still love being a human with all of its complexities and difficulties and ups and downs. And I think we're going through a lot of that right now in very big fashion. And my faith in humanity, as Man One was saying, is what keeps me going, keeps me positive through all of this very difficult times. The structures I'm not impressed by. But I, I do love humanity a great deal. And I love making art more than just about anything except for maybe my kids and my husband, my family. I want to ask you something about um, one of your pieces, Linda, that the first time I saw it, I don't know why, out of all the pieces, I mean, you know, I love your work and all that, but this one piece, I don't know why, why I know why I want to bring it up. So you have, uh, you know, in your Browning, your Browning series, you have a Bob's Big Boy. Yeah, I love Bob's Big Boy. Right? Yeah. And that one's really interesting to me, very personal, because I grew up in Alhambra, okay? For those of you who don't know, don't know it's like in, in the 10 minutes east of, of uh, downtown L.A., right? And growing up there, it was a very 
older white community. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got into high school, it was a very Asian community. And it still is. It's, it's probably, Alhambra is probably more, has the best uh, Chinese food in LA probably. It overtook uh, Chinatown a long time ago, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyways, my point is that in Alhambra on Valley Boulevard, there was a Bob's Big Boy. It was the closest one that we knew about. And my dad loved to go there. So as a kid, we would always go there every weekend and have breakfast and stuff, right? There's always a big giant statue of Bob's Big Boy on the outside. And, you know, everyone always took pictures in front of it and you hugged it and whatever, you know. <laughs> and um, it was such a part of my childhood, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden I see it in one of your exhibits and it's brown faced, right? Yeah. Well, and no, it, it's not. It's more than brown face. Well, this is well, an yeah. important point. Yeah. Okay. He's well, brown. Right. He's, he's brown. He's brown. He's, he's brown. brown. You're right. But when I saw him brown, it totally blew my mind because I was like, as a child all my life, I've loved Bob's Big Boy, and I never realized he but wasn't he was brown. brown. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, that's so you pointed it out. Oh my God, he's brown. You're right. It's part of my yeah. childhood. He's brown. And what makes this story, I think, even takes it to another level is if you go to that location where Bob's Big Boy used to be in Alhambra, Bob's Big Boy is long gone. It's been mm-hmm. long gone for a long time. Yeah. I think there's a noodle planet there. <laughs> okay. In the same, in the same restaurant. Right? Yeah. And there's no more Bob's Big Boy outside where he used to be and all that. Right. And so one time we went to go eat dinner at Noodle Planet. And you walk in, and if you go to the far back of the restaurant, there's the Bob's Big Boy still inside. They put it inside. They took it out of the street and put it inside in the back. So the only thing I can gather is that not only is Bob's Big Boy brown, mm-hmm. he's yeah. also Asian. <laughs> he's also black. You know, so he's probably so many different colors and races. Because I can just imagine how many people had that same experience as me growing up. You know, with this yeah. one I- iconic image, right? Just yeah, like, so I love that. Well, my, my parents did Bob's Big Boy when they were teenagers in East LA. Yeah. I mean, Bob's Big Boy was kind of like the original McDonald's, in, and it's it's a California icon. Right. The funny thing about that is that you know people say, well, because I paint it, I make them all Mexican. I make them yeah. all Mexican. Everything I make every I paint. I buy pricey antiques and paint the skin brown. And uh, people say, well, why don't you do Frank Sinatra? And I say, yeah, sure. Go out and find him for me. You got to go to the, all the antique malls and look for Frank Sinatra and see what you find. Because part of what the process is really about is kind of like the segunda, which is a subculture of Latinismo in itself, because you have working class and working poor. They do a lot of their shopping at the secondhand stores. Well, I ended up in the secondhand stores in the antique malls. It's a part of the culture. It's a double entendre for anybody who knows the good joke, the good lifestyle. So you have to go out and find it. And when you go out there, what you find is a, a, a capsulated Americana because everything that's in the Segunda, everything that's in the antique mall belonged to your mother or and your grandmother. And in some cases, your great grandmother, if you're lucky enough to find something that's from the early cent- part of the century. So you're, you're, you're placed in a situation where you have to paint, you have to make brown what you find. I first started looking for Mexican imagery, you know, and all you find really is a sleepy farm worker with a big hat on it. Uh, leaning up against a cactus. Like that's one of the images that you'll find repeated, repeated, but you won't find much of anything in terms of what Latinos are within the culture. There's almost nothing out there. What you find a lot of is pop imagery, 
and fake Victorian and fake European uh, antiques. It's very, very interesting. You find oh, what, the Little Boy Blue forever. Yeah. You find images of Little Boy Blue. And, of course, I made him Little Boy Brown and Brownie. Instead of Pinky, she became Brownie. The first sculpture I ever saw, well, the first piece I ever saw in the store that ignited the whole idea was uh, the Dick and Jane primer. See Dick run, see Spot play, see Jane, like those little books that all of us had to watch or read yeah. in second grade in the 50s, right? We were all reading the same books. And I looked at it and I said, damn, you know, MF. I could yeah. just paint them brown. I could just make them all brown. Oh, my God, I want to make them all Mexican. And that just sort of, it hit after about four years of thinking about how to use repurposed object while culling these things. And the first sculpture I ever saw that I did was, and this will tell you kind of where my, how my brain works. So I found these little uh, salt and pepper shakers of the pilgrims, cute little salt and pepper shakers of the pilgrims. And I said, damn, I'm going to make them brown. Who the hell invited who to dinner anyway? Yeah. Who had the corn? Who had the fish? Who had the turkey? Who, who exactly invited who to dinner? What is this all about? Right. I'm not only going to turn the, the politics of color and class on its head, I'm going to turn the politics of history yeah. on, its, on its head and make people ask questions about these. And I get a lot of responses. You know what little big boy's uh, second name is? Did you, did you see that? No. His second name is uh, Muchachote. Muchachote. <laughs> yeah. Muchachote. Big boy. Yeah. Which has all kinds of other ramifications in a in a patriarchal society which Latino is Latinism so much is muchacho. Every guy wants to be muchacho. Yeah. Yeah. And every guy should be if his wife's doing the right job, right? <laughs> That's awesome. Oh man. Yeah, I've done everybody, Marilyn Monroe. My favorite is Barney Rubble and Fred Flintstone. <laughs> yeah. I did Barney Rubble. I found these beautiful uh rubber rubber uh, images and I made Barney who's significantly shorter than 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 Fred really dark red brown so he looks like a centroamericano he looks yeah. like a guatemalteco and my question there is really so a short red brown guy can be the best friend in the world and forgive this this lumbering idiot every mistake he makes and all the times he this is of uh, Barney all the time it's always creating problems for him but Barney's always coming back as the best friend you ever had so yeah, why can't yeah. we see a short dark guy as the as the best friend you have the most loyal friend you've ever known so I get lots of laughs about a lot of things sometimes people one this is one of the good jokes is um someone I've had Latinos say this to me why you got to make him so dark oh really yeah Oh, yeah. Why you got to make them so dark? Yeah. And that's a tough question. You know, you can create a lot of trouble because that's really talking about the inner politics. Speaking of indivisibility, we have indivisibility within within races themselves, within communities themselves. Right. right? We have all the same difficulties in the smallest microcosm. So when the guy asked me this, I think it was a woman that actually asked me this. Why you got to make them so dark? And of course, she was a darker girl herself. Yeah. And I looked up at the audience and said, well, I like them short and dark. What are you going to do? <laughs> and then everybody cracked up. And then some guy at the back, some short, dark guy at the back goes, hey. hey. <laughs> so I, I have a question, though. I mean, to the extent that that is about, you know, idealizing the white persona, to the extent that that is about some aspiration towards whiteness, What's it going to take to change that? When I was in China, right, I was in Shanghai, right? 
and I was walking around the shopping centers. Here I am in China and all of the models and all of the ads were European. They were white, blue eyed models. When I was in Haiti helping an NGO there, I couldn't help but notice the whitening cream in the local drugstore there because they want to lighten their skin. You know, let's talk about this. I mean, what's it going to take? I'm going to answer this one. Uh, First of all, status is really important in the world. Status is viewed at this time. If If you have to work outside like a like a farm worker or a, a essential worker, if you're out about on the streets all the time working, it's really hard to stay light. Put anybody outside, it's going to be really hard. People who have very uh, what, wealthy and sort of structured lives and, you know, they've got their own, their own gym inside their house and they've got their trainer and, you know, the wealth, uh, they're going to be fairer. And a lot of this has been throughout time. It's been throughout history. Even in Asia, you had people in, doing in the, rice, in the rice fields and they're darker. And then you have the very uh, wealthy who are inside the homes being served by the darker people. You have women wearing powder to make themselves lighter. I mean, this was what uh, King Louis XVI in Europe and France and the powdering of the face and the powdering of the wigs. And then you had the people in the fields who had ruddier skin and they were darker. So it's really about class in terms of how you get to take care of yourself. Unfortunately, there's people like me. This is about this is about as light as I get. I could stay inside all day. I wouldn't get much lighter than this just because of the pigmentation of my skin, which places me in a different position when I am in the context of social, you know, social hierarchies. So you have, uh, you know, like before uh, in Rubinette's times, uh, really robust women were, were wanted because they got to stay inside all day, sit around and eat all day. And everybody else was starving in the fields. So skinny wasn't so good then and voluptuous meant you were very wealthy and well taken care of. Nowadays, it's sort of the opposite. If you're sort of porky, sort of larger, more voluptuous, you probably eat too much junk food and you're poor. So you don't have a chance to be able to eat organically and go to the best restaurants and have a chef and all these things. So class and class structures change depending on what people look like. And light and dark have been in the field of this question for a very, very long time. And if you look inside uh, what the, the, the African-American community, they actually have descriptions of the lighter skinned and the darker skinned. Same with the, the Latinos. They have the same negative uh, attributes for darker girls. Darker girls don't have access to education. Darker girls don't get the best marriages. I mean, this has kind of been going on for a very long time. Now, the other thing is that you have, if you'll excuse me, you have the Bible and you have all the Christian negative and positives going on. We have light and dark. And light and dark is confused as far as I can tell in the Christian uh, 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 vernacular where the dark is the devil and the light is God and the angels, where hell is very dark and dank and heaven is light and ethereal and bright and, you know, white and black. I mean, how, how much how much more clear can I say it? And as long as you have those two, that diametrically opposed coloration, if you will, to indicate good and bad, dark and light, evil and enlightened, all of these things, then um, humanity is not bright enough to be able to figure out that, you know, you can have a white person that can be just about as evil as you can get, and you can have the darkest man in the neighborhood be kind and loving and joyous with his children. It has nothing to do with the reality of the situation. It's just these ideologies. So you have this class structure mixing in with it. Then you have this very old colonization of the planet where Christianity was sort of the Christian ideology and, and vernacular was placed inside all the other religions. And as soon as you did that, all of a sudden, everybody got like totally confused about what's light and what's dark. 
you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this, and there's a lot of scholars who are talking about colonialization right now and patriarchy and how all of these things that are kind of mixing in the way we feel about each other, rather than uh, look at the character of a human being, the capacity for compassion, the capacity for insight, the capacity for creativity, generosity, love, you know, uh, this is, you know, this is what I believe we should be looking for, not gender or race or creed or color orientation. The caliber of an individual matters more than anything, but unfortunately, most of humanity is not intelligent enough to be able to go that deep. They go just for superficial values. And I think we all, I think just about everybody would agree with me on that. So you have like, I want to be, I want to be a white model. Why do you want your agent? Why would you want to be a white model? Why are you doing that? It's because of the way that you believe people would perceive you, that people would treat you. Maybe people would be kinder to you. Maybe you'd get a promotion. Maybe you'd make more money. Maybe you'd be more popular. Maybe you could afford a better husband. You could get a better husband. It's a, it's a pretty complicated brew. This is the kind of conversation that comes out of painting Bob's big boy brown. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, what'd you do? Why's it got to be so dark? Well, it's funny what you just said is so true. And Thanks for letting me say um, You know, myself, being a darker Latino, I've experienced – a lot of what you're talking about, and I and I'm not on the far end of, of darkness. You know, I'm not I'm not like really really dark, but I'm darker than a lot, especially a lot. You're dark enough. Let me tell you, you're dark enough. I'm dark enough. You're dark enough. So am I. But what I what I because I love kind of these experiments that I do all the time, especially when I travel. People always ask me where I'm from because they're very confused because I'm dark. But I'm six foot one. Oh yeah, you would. Well, you would confuse them. You would. I have long hair. I have different look about me, I guess, and it confuses people. So I always like traveling, and people when they ask me that, I say, well, "You tell me where I'm from. I want to know. I want to know where you think I'm from, right?" So. And what do they tell you? What do they tell you? What do they think you're from? It's, it's interesting. I've got Samoan. I've got Native American. I've got Black. I've gotten Japanese. Um, mm. And it's funny, like they'll just go down um, uh, Middle Eastern, mm-hmm. Pakistani. I've gotten like the whole range, and oh, yeah. rarely do they ever say Mexican. That's that's never like the first or second thing they say. <laughs> and I always find that funny because it's like, as soon as I tell them, well, I'm, you know, my parents are from Mexico, and they they're like, well, you're tall, you know, but but you have long hair. But, you know, your eyes are a little bit slanted. You look oriental a little bit, you know, and I'm like, uh-huh. you know, it's so yeah. funny because, um, you know, it's just these these preconceived notions that people have of what you should look like if you're from a certain place. Oh, well, how you should think, how you should think, how you should talk, how you should walk, what exactly. you want, what you don't want. Yeah. And Pew Charitable Trust just did a study of uh, Mexican women in the Southwest, and they found that 80 percent of Mexican-American women living in the Southwest, that includes me, 80% of them have Apache and Navajo blood because, you know, the, there was no uh, a border. And so the men would just marry into other tribes going back and forth. And so, yeah, get real. <laughs> One of the funnier things was I, I was somewhere in like Alabama or something like that. I was on tour throughout the country and we were staying at this hotel on this one night. And so I went swimming. So my hair was all down. Right. And so I'm swimming in the pool and there's an old white couple in the pool with me. That's it. And they're looking at me for a while. And finally, they approach me and they say, hey, um, can we ask you a question? And I'm like, 
yeah, sure. They're like, uh, what tribe are you from? I said, what do you mean? They're like, yeah, I think, I think uh, the guy says, I think you're Cherokee. And then I said, I said, no, I'm not Cherokee. Oh, no, and then, and then the, the wife goes, I told you he was Navajo. <laughs> and I said, I'm not Navajo either. And then they're like, what? Yeah. And then I said, I said, I'm Mexican. And they, they just like, they couldn't, it so threw them off that their next statement was, oh, well, we like Mexican food. What's that, what's that favorite place that we go to all the time? And the, the wife's like, oh, Taco Bell. Yeah, we love Taco Bell. <laughs> what generation Californian are you? I was born in East LA. My parents both came from Mexico in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was the first one born here in the States, I'm first generation. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, one of the reasons I wanted to go to college, actually, aside obviously from just you know, getting my degree and learning or whatever, but one of the reasons behind that was obviously being a graffiti artist. Um, I knew there was a lot of other graffiti artists that I was competing against, but most of them didn't have college degrees. So I figured if 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 I got a college degree, I would be able to, you know, to stand out a little bit more over over my peers. Well, the other thing that came out of that was that I'm also a Latino with an education, and uh, I never realized how that throws people off uh, in the quote unquote real world later on when I started traveling, when I started discovering what I wanted to do and, and how I wanted to approach things. And once once people understand that I have an education, it's so interesting how people's vision of you or what they think, the preconceived notion of you changes, you know, very quickly. It's uh, just interesting, but that's 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 part of the world we live in, you know? Yeah, I, uh, you, know, you have to have, I think everybody, regardless, needs to have a college education. Everybody needs to have an MBA <laughs> or a master's degree if they can if they can muster up to it. Mostly just because for self for self to learn how to learn to learn how to study and to learn how to converse. Like a lot of a lot of places where I end up, I end up in conversations on pretty heavy topics. Like today, I mean, we're talking some very pretty heavy yeah. topics. To be able to share your ideas verbally is a really important thing to be able to do, no matter what lifestyle you choose. But for myself personally, as again, a woman of color who is basically the bottom of the totem pole, to be able to open my mouth and say a lot of, you know, hopefully interesting and intelligent things helps people to become more interested in seeing the images that I'm producing. I can write about my work and I write about my work a lot. And I work with artists to learn how to write about their work. And I think that language is something that's really inherent in a, in a higher in higher education is language, reading, writing, and speaking. Yeah, I would agree with you. I got a master in fine arts so that I would have a little more cachet out there in a world that I knew would be pretty tough on me as an artist. That's the world we live in. I think it's the world we've always lived in. It's, it's kind of shifting. Like one of the things that happened, uh, people ask me all the time because I also made all the presidents brown. Yeah, and I make all the wealthiest of the wealthy brown as well. And the question really is, would the world really be a different place if the race was reversed, where the black and brown was on top and uh, the Asian was in the middle and the white was at the bottom in terms of economic uh, economic stability and right. positions of power? And unfortunately, my answer is no, it wouldn't be any different. It would, it would be a mixture of the same, same kind of stuff that humanity is only capable of. You'd have men would still be at the top of the of the pile without a doubt. Women would still be relegated to positions that they're not always happy in, if you will. 
some women really like myself, I'm pretty traditional in, in terms of a home, but a lot of girls I know they have no interest at all, especially artist types. But I, it, and I think that kind of goes back to what I said at the very beginning. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that a brown and black world would be a better world. I'm really not sure that's would 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 work, and maybe that's where indivisible and comes to, is what does it really mean to be indivisible? As long as you have a hierarchy, right, of the haves and have-nots anywhere, whether it's in a room of of peered artists, you know, people do that a lot. They create hierarchies in rooms of artists. They create hierarchies, and I don't know, families create hierarchies and relatives. You know, we tend to do this thing where we build a pyramid. Nope, every pun intended. Yeah. We keep building this pyramid. I think it's, uh, you know, I think humanity is basically a war machine. This seems to be what we enjoy the most. The guys just can't get away from more. They just love that stuff. They love the guns. They love the violence. There's something about it. I'm I'm just not, uh, I'm hoping that the image, that the image I produce brings up some of these questions, at least so that people can come to some understanding of how they feel about it so that they can reconcile their own lives reconcile like one-on-one the relationships they have with their own children, with their parents, with their neighbors. And I don't think that, I don't think that people expect that to come out of me. Well, you want it all to be Brown, right? How come everybody, why it got to be Brown? Why got, you know, like get all up inside of me about it. And I'm like, it's just some questions, man. All it is is a bunch of questions. I'm just asking what would happen. And unfortunately my answer is not much. I asked Linda Ronstadt when I said, imagine what the music world would be like if uh, Elvis Presley had been Mexican. She said, well, yeah. She said, tell me about it. Her world would have right. certainly been different. If the greatest, you know, if one of the greatest rock and roll, uh, well, not one, well, yes, one of the greatest rock and roll came out of Mexico. I mean, that would have changed the whole world upside down. Right. Well, it's, it's funny how, you know, you took it one way with your art in terms of you know the browning you know, as a metaphor and speak on speak on race and all that in that way i took it the other way my paintings when i do portraits and and things like that they're multiple multiple colors they're always as bright and varied colors as possible right and my my point on doing doing that is to express that you know the color is about about who we are as, as people and our energy and our spirit and the more important things about us, not the flesh tone, but it's, it's everything inside of us. Right. And that's kind of what I want to reveal with the color, but it's so funny because let's say I paint a African-American, African-American person in my style. Someone always wants to say, Oh, that's a black person, right? Like they still want to negate, the whole issue that I'm bringing up in terms of the color and the energy and, and what their insides are about or whatever, it's about beauty. Yeah. yeah. Like instead I can of just talking that. about beauty yeah. and this, someone always has to take it back to, oh, that's that's a Mexican guy you painted or that's a black person you painted. Yeah. That's, yeah. And, um, but I guess that's part of the conversation, right? It's like, why do we do that? Why do we always go back to that? Yeah. I mean, I've done photographs. I, I paint on photographs and make photographs brown too. And you know, I do something really funny. I change their noses. I change their noses out, yeah. and, and I give them either the the real Indio nose or the the chato. Do the chato, yeah. and I always have to give a lot of them an upper lip right. because a lot of the Caucasian races don't have an upper lip. And so I'm always painting on that upper. And it's it's funny, but it's kind of 
damn, Linda. And people will look, people will look at it, right? And they'll go, who is that? You know, it'll be, it'll be, I don't know what, Catherine Hepburn, right? And they'll look at the, who, 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 who is that? She's Latina, right? Who? And they're trying to figure out who the Latina movie star yeah. is that I painted. And I'm kind of like, no, I just gave her a bigger upper lip. I gave her, I gave him a mustache. Yeah. I, I'm always joking about it because it's such a tough topic. Like this idea of, of questioning whether, I mean, in essence, what you're saying is that someone would look at a, an energetic painting of a, of a man and boil it all the way back down to his race right. rather than saying, wow, look at the energy coming out of that guy's head. I wonder how, I wonder, I wonder what he likes to talk about yeah. or what he reads or what kind of music he listens to, what yeah. kind of spirituality he practices. I mean, that's where we started today. As I have boiled it down to the lowest common denominator, but it was just a crazy idea that I had, an insane idea that I had, and I went out and bought $3,000 worth of It's insanity, but, yeah, you know, you have to follow the art where it comes from. But then people in real life will go get Botox injected into their lips, right? They'll get their noses redone. They'll get their skin bleached. Right? They'll buy a designer bag that they only bring out when they're going to go to Rodeo Drive. They're going to, that's all the designer clothing that they need so that you can have this status where people will respect you because it's a guarantee. And now there are butt implants. Yeah. Women are getting butt implants, so they have a bigger ass. I mean, I'm guessing most of those women are white, which is very interesting. Well, you know, this is this is nothing unnew. When you think about Victorian, when you think about the Victorian age, and the Victorian age practiced all over the world. It wasn't just in Europe. It was in the United States. It was even in, in Asia. The, they had these body pads for women, and women strapped on body pads to make the bustle fit right, to make the front of the body be almost completely flat with the breast higher underneath a plate. I mean, they did all these body, weird body shaping things. And if you were wealthy, you could afford all of these pads. It was a form of status. Whereas the women in the fields, you know, Native American women didn't wear corsets. Mexican women didn't wear corsets in the fields. I mean, who could work? It's just about beauty and status, and it's everywhere all the time. And the wealthy can afford these things, and the middle class and working class can't afford it, or you know, don't give a damn about it, or have more important things to do. You know, I'd rather spend that money on material. Vanity really is a luxury, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if you 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 can afford to be vain or not. Well, what occurs to me is that a lot of these women who do these things, they kind of all look the same. Have you noticed? They kind of, there's kind of like a, if you will, if you'll allow me just just to, to coin something, it's like a Barbie look. Mm. Yeah. We could just call it for a moment a Barbie look. I know it's more complicated than that. But if we do that, then we have a certain kind of hair tinted in a certain way, curled in a certain way, a certain kind of face and nose and bust line and shape and coloration. It, I mean, when I see a lot of these, a, a lot of women, if you go to a certain very wealthy kind of areas, you kind of go, wow, it's, it's a look. And I think it has to do more with low self-esteem than high self-esteem, to be honest with you. Yeah. I don't want to look like everybody else. You know, I want to look like my mom and my dad and my grandma, my grandpa. I want to look like me. So I think it's really more about low self-esteem. And I think maybe, maybe that's even one of the nuances of patriarchy and colonialism that we need to really think about. 
because American women, well, not, not only that, but European women are into it as well. Asian women are certainly into it. The higher, yeah. the higher echelons of money around the world are doing this thing. I would yeah. think to please men. That's what I would well, You know, one, one of the things that always tripped me out is I, I read this thing uh, many years ago where the guy who's, I can't remember the guy's name that was talking about it, but he was saying that America was Bucci, right? Who was known as the guy who America was named after. That's mm-hmm. Bucci. You always say it's because of the maps that he drew of, right? Yes. And this guy was saying it wasn't really the maps that made people come over here. It wasn't the fact that he created these maps. It was the letters that he was writing to his friends back in Europe. And some of those letters, he was explaining how these Native American women, uh, these Indians or whatever, that they would have babies and their stomachs would be flat again afterwards. And it was such an amazing thing that these women's bodies would never lose shape, (laughs) even, even after multiple babies. So... All of a sudden, you had talking about the patriarchy, right? Yeah. So now you had men coming over from Europe because they wanted to see what's up with these amazing women who, uh, after they had their babies, they never lost their shape. Like the Amazon, yeah. the Amazon women. Yes. Yeah. 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 So you know this whole thing. It's like wow. It's it's crazy, but that's you know that's uh... a. <laughs> well, they say that they say that war actually began. That war actually started. That the activity of war itself was actually a fight between men over women. It had to be. <laughs> I don't know why. Why else would go to war? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I have a theory about all of this, which, you know, again, it's just a theory. But, um, but perhaps man's biggest, greatest accomplishment is getting out of the food chain. Who's food chain? Right? Like uh-huh. somehow – the ant we're an- if you agree that we're animals right if you agree that we're part of this natural ecosystem you know man as he evolved at some point we there were real predators right we had to we it was kill or be killed you know and somehow some way man figured out how to get out of the food chain right? but this instinct of of predator prey fight or flight was still very mm-hmm. much in us yeah Right. It's interesting to think, like, how did that manifest or how did it get reborn? Well, mating, fighting over a a woman, perhaps uh, fighting over, oh, you're you know, you have the food now. So I'm going to conquer your village. Right. And then on and on. And so this this idea of violence, maybe even this idea of racism is somehow this idea of other. Right. Is somehow connected to this very primal animal kind of instinct that's still in us, even though we got out of the, the food chain. Conquer or be conquered. Yeah. Conquer but is that, really, is that mostly a male trait or a human trait? I think it's a human trait um, because it's survival. That's an interesting question because now we have, we have women leadership. You know, who's to say that women leadership is better than male leadership? It's just about mixing it up for me. Why shouldn't women be leaders? And, but I don't expect women leaders to be angelic or visionary any more than men are. But why shouldn't women have a chance to go out there too? What's the big deal here? You know, let women do it. Let people of all color do it. Everybody should have a chance. But conquer and be conquered, I think it is part of our DNA. I think war uh, is part of our DNA. And as long as war is connected to money as strongly as it is today, Mm -hmm. 
to sales and money right. and what resources, because war is still connected to resources. Yeah. As long as it's that, that we can go over and take that guy's stuff. We can go over there with bigger weapons and take that guy's stuff. We can take it all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, destroy all the leadership. I mean, this is a really old formula. Walk in, destroy all the old leadership, destroy all the medicine people, destroy all you know all the all the knowledge, and take all the women and all the kids and make slaves out of them. I mean, this is this is really old. This is a very. I mean, the uh, the Aztecas that were really good at this. There were certain Native American tribes that were basically warring tribes. I would say that when you have an agrarian society, you know, based on crops and growing things and, uh, you know, weaving and all those sort of uh, older, the, some like what the Hopi, the Tibetan, then you have less of this need for aggression and violence. But unfortunately, that's very limited. Most, most people really like it. I mean, look at media. Look at media. Look what people like to watch. They love it, man. We just—it just comes natural to us, and it's—it's not—it's really not a, a nice thing to say about us. They were basically pretty violent species. I mean, what was it? Uh, the idea of we're always having to vilify any creatures from extraterrestrial creatures. We always have to vilify the other to get back to your word. We're always vilifying rather than just trusting and believing that there's something we could find together. There's something we could build together. Well, and this is an interesting. This gets back to this idea of indivisibility, because being indivisible is not, in my view, is not to imply we are the same, right? Indivisibility is on some level about recognizing that we're, in spite of our differences, we're all in this together. And, you know, this word diversity gets used a lot in many different ways. And Linda, you were talking a minute, a minute ago about, you know, would women be better in power you know, and the reality is we don't, you know, maybe, maybe not, who knows, but scientists are very aware that for our ecosystem on this planet to be healthy and be vibrant, it needs to be diverse. We need a diverse of insects and animals and species, you know, and, and when these species get be, become extinct and or endangered, the ecosystem is threatened. And I feel like if you extrapolate that out into our humanity and, and how we govern and how we manage things... We need a diverse body of leaders. We need a diverse body of voices. And that's when, when, we, when you lose that diversity, that's when you start being threatened. And so it's not like, for, so for me, it becomes not about, oh, are, are women going to be better leaders than men? No, together they will make each other better. If only we would take the chance. We're, we really don't have any choice. You know, the world is diverse. I mean, we could go off and kill all the diversity that exists, but I don't know if that would really ever work. Uh, I don't think that would really function. It's been tried. Yeah. You know, it's been tried to kill out full races of people. I don't need to mention yeah. any races, but we it, it's been tried on all, all around. It's been tried everywhere. And it doesn't seem to really work. It just creates bloodshed, just begets bloodshed and confusion. I don't really, I don't think it's in, for myself personally, uh, it isn't. I don't need to agree with you. I don't need to have the same belief system that you do. I've said this before. I don't need I don't need the security of that. That the fact that you're different, that you think differently, that you work differently, that you have different that you know that you function in the world in a different way doesn't scare me because I know who I am and I know what I do and I know why I do it and I know what I believe in personally. I've spent my whole life building a belief system and a, a way to function that I can live with. You know, and I hope that my reputation is one of being 
a very a very sweet friend of mine recently who I respect greatly said, oh, Linda, you're so soulful. And it was one of the finest compliments I'd ever received from someone who I have a great deal of respect for. I'm always searching, you know, for the answer and stuff. But if we could just feel this way about each other rather than feeling that everybody has to be the same, kind of like we're going back to this whole thing about everybody's got to get a butt implant. You know, why do we all have to be the same? Exactly why do we need to do that? I'm not sure. And is it so that I can respect you because you look like me? If you bleach your skin and, and, and you cut off all your hair and you started wearing something differently, would that mean that I would respect you as an artist more? I think that's really not very intelligent. It's quite erroneous. You know, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty simple formula. Diversity is here to stay, and we need to acknowledge and respect everyone regardless. Yeah. I, I don't get what the difficulty is. I just don't understand it. I think fear, low self-esteem, uh, and indoctrination, which doesn't really belong to you, but belongs to somebody else that you take on, but you don't really believe. I certainly don't believe in systems that relegate the only activity to violence. I'm not going to become a member of a group where I have to go out and destroy stuff. <laughs> it's, it's not going to happen. Man, one, how are you about that? Well, I mean, I think one, I think you're totally right. And one of the things that, and maybe you touched on a, touched on it earlier, is that I think as human beings, we have a flaw or many flaws, but one of them is that we always have to find something to argue about or we always have to find something to make wrong or we always have to be better than something else, right? There's always, we can't just be at peace. I love meeting people who are completely different than me. I learned so much from people who have different beliefs who look yeah. different than me, who speak different than me. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the beauty of humanity. That's, you know, that's why I love to travel because I get to yeah. meet people who are like, come from way different backgrounds, have a whole different approach to life. And it makes me grow. It makes me expand who I am. So I'm thankful for that. You know, like, wow, I'm, I'm glad I'm in this earth with people like you. But there's, then there's, you meet these people who they don't want that. They just want, you to have the same accent, have the same look, come from the same part of the country. And you're like, really? Like, that's what you want in life? You want everyone to just be like you? And it's so sad. It's so small. There's no, there's no future in that. I think as artists, that's kind of what we're always, one of the things we're kind of implying all the time is that all of us as artists are unique and different. And we're coming at life and exhibiting in a different way. Could you imagine going to a museum where every painting was the same? <laughs> what would be the point no, the, of that? That's actually a nice piece. That's actually a pretty nice piece. Yeah. I wouldn't mind seeing that. I think that'd be funny as hell. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll steal that. That's yeah, a pretty good one. Go ahead. You go into, you, you uh, rent a whole museum and go in and just duplicate everything and just put it up on the wall and go, this is the future of art. From this yeah. person's yeah. point of view, this is what we would get. I think that's a pretty good thing. I, I think you could actually... Uh, that sounds funny. That sounds yeah. really funny. Like you'd walk in and go, hell, what the hell? What do you mean? What the hell? And all of a sudden. Linda, I'm going to go on record right now and just say that Crew West Studio will help sponsor that uh, installation. Let's go for and it. I, mean, I think it'd be, it'd be pretty yeah. easy to do. I mean, it's not like it's it, it's more conceptual than it is about, you know, because it all it's all just declays. We could just pick one image. I mean, what would the image be is kind of a funny thing. That, that's right. the choice. That's what the would the, what, they, what would the image be, which is kind right. of funny. It would have to be something really old and 
classical and very well known to everybody. Yeah. Like the Mona Lisa everywhere. That's yeah. you know that kind of a thing. Like the Mona Lisa on every wall, little itty bitty ones, medium sized ones, giant ones, a huge mural. Everything is nothing but her. <laughs> one of one with just her hand, you know, one with just her neck. <laughs> little parts of the painting, little pieces, but it's just like one view. No matter what you do, no matter where you turn, it'd be the wallpaper in the bathroom. <laughs> it'd be on the toilet paper. <laughs> right. You know, the brochures would have it all over the place, and right. all the, and the all gift the, shop would have everything. Nothing but her, and everybody in the whole place would have to dress like her. It'd be kind of like the Renaissance Fair, <laughs> right. right? The Renaissance Fair. Right. I wonder what you'd be eating at the opening. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's something that already looks like that that happens every year, <laughs> and well, it's yeah. I go to these Chicano shows, and all they have is Frida paintings. I know. <laughs> I know. You know, I, I'm, so I'm so glad. Thank you so much for letting every, me off the hook. Every time I look and it's like, oh, no, not another Frida. Like, come on. Well, do you guys have an idea in your head or what? You guys have an idea in your head or what? Do you have? I mean, I just can't. I can't. One of I, I taught a class once. It was one of those classes I was talking uh, about earlier where I help artists uh, write about their work and develop some business acumen. Yeah. And I had a Mexicana in my class. She was in my class and. Class was over and we were sort of sitting around. She just looked at me and she said something really funny. She said, why does El Chicano artwork look like artesanía? <laughs> and I thought, damn, girl, you should get on the radio. Yeah. You should get on the radio and start talking about it. It's because I think it's, you know, in order to come up with really interesting image, not repetitious image, it, you really have to spend some time thinking about it. Right. You, I mean, you, you really have to devote energy and study and research and experimentation into something that actually has something to say yeah. to me it's more like decorative work yeah. than what i would consider to be fine art because fine art has a point of view fine art has a real it has a political point of view it has a view about beauty it has a view about culture it has a view about politics it has a view it has and some of and the best work has very strong views you know the strongest work has very strong views one way or the other but repetitions of Frida to me, that's that's there's no point of view in that. Right. To me, right. it's I need to make some extra money for Christmas, so I think I'll do Frida with little <laughs> Santa Claus earrings. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, all right, okay, chill, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for letting me off the hook because when I talk about that, I get really, <laughs> I don't know what to do with myself. I just like really okay. I'll, I'll take the hate mail for this one. It's, I mean, at least it's at the end of the interview. Maybe people won't listen this long to hear how how really backwards we are in terms of our understanding of Chicano art. Right, right. You know, I mean, backwards or progressive? Well, I'm making a terrifying joke. We're not only progressive. I think you know, both of us have had the opportunity to exhibit internationally and. You know, we're being invited to exhibit solos regularly, and I'm I'm being published regularly. Manuan, as a resume is is spectacular. His bio is unbelievable, and you just kind of think, well, how does somebody do that? Like a lot of artists want to know, how do you do that? Well, you do it by having a a singular vision and a point of view, a very specific point of view that you can articulate. Yeah, you have yeah. to, and and that just doesn't come because you buy, you know, you buy a. A happy meal, you know, it it doesn't come like that. It's a, a lifetime of work and investigation, and you have to know a good idea when you see it. 
You got it. You got it. And you got to be able to, you have to be willing to go for it regardless. And if you're just doing repetitions of other people's work and little bits and pieces, that's, that doesn't fit any of those bills. And that's why you don't get solos and, you know, opportunities to show great bodies of work. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a t-shirt series that I want to do that goes along. It's going to tie in beautifully what we just spoke about on all levels. So these t-shirts are just going to be print talking about Frida. One of them is going to say Frida was Antifa. So that's, that's going to be the shirt. And, oh my goodness. and I'm going to do a whole series of, of artists, uh, anti-fascist artists. I just want to put it out there. So I won't, I won't reveal oh. the whole series, but, but Frida was Antifa will be one of them. Oh, wow. Will it just be words or will there be an image attached? Online, I'm going to, I'm going to put an image attached of the artist's work, like on Twitter or whatever. But on, yeah. the, on the shirts, I was thinking of just, just doing text. Yeah. Well, it's, they're pretty. That's pretty intellectual, actually. Yeah. You know, that's a pretty intellectual object. Thank you. So yeah, that I that's that's a series that I've been thinking about the last few weeks, and I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna make it a t-shirt series. That'll be the that'll be. The, <laughs> that's where I'm gonna start with it. Well, it's kind of you know, it's a matter of I guess you have to do like a some kind of a you know how they have those uh, funny little things where you have uh, you women buy clothes, you go in and you buy clothes, and they actually have a video of the girl wearing the clothes. Yeah. Yeah. And she walks in and does the thing, and she does the thing, and she does the twist, and she shows yeah. you the clothes, yeah. Yeah. and then she ends up in a pose. It'd be funny to have a series of videos with the T-shirts, uh, like a, sort of a take on, you know, wearable art and what it means to wear things. I mean, it's and you could have the most ridiculous people wearing them, people that you wouldn't expect. Certainly not the bleached blondes with the butt implants. You know, yeah. different kinds yeah. of people. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm uh, I'm working on really big installation now. Room size installation. Oh wow! Based on the politics of power. Mm-hmm. And Brown, I'm really, really excited. Multiple uh, concepts are coming together to create a multifaceted installation with works on paper, paintings, uh, mixed media objects, life size objects, even sound. I'm working on sound based on the politics of colonialism that I've been working on for a long time. A sound object that I'm really, really excited about. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll be able to pull it off. I hope so. I would like to. Where so, are you going to do I don't want to let any cats out of the bag, oh, but I just, I just had a meeting. I've been commissioned by a museum to install it and to travel it. I think uh, the entire installation could be maybe something close to, oh, I don't know, 50 to 100 objects. I'm very, very excited. Uh, I bought a big, I bought, you'll like this. I bought a a spray gun, bought a giant spray gun. You'll like that. You you can imagine me out there with the goggles and the big apron spraying the the brown, the hell of brown out of everything. That's right. You can see the color in the back here is like a milk chocolate. I found that uh, milk chocolate is the least offensive brown for people of all color, all races. I think because it's it's connected to food, milk chocolate, con yeah, leche. Yeah. Someone the other day called it con leche. Somehow or another, people can can accept the brown if it looks like it's delicious and it's sweet and it's edible. And somehow or another, that doesn't offend them. Rather than doing like a dark chocolate, yeah. boy, yeah. that offends, offends everybody. Except for me, because I like them short and dark. Yeah. I, like, I don't care. It doesn't... 
seem it doesn't matter to me, but it matters to just about everybody. I'll be excited to see your t-shirts. I want one. Awesome. Well, Linda Vallejo, Man One, I want to thank you both for joining us here today and taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk about these important topics. I'm so grateful that you guys are both in the Indivisible show. I want to remind everybody that the show opens online October 17th. You can learn more on the website at indivisible2020.org. The Zoom reception where you as the artist will be there and speak to your work and address the attendees. That will be on October 24th uh, at 12 o'clock. Again, all the information will be on indivisible2020.org. Any parting words or thoughts as we sign off here? That's something to say, Madeline. Yeah, I just want to say there's Sasquatch over your shoulder and we haven't addressed <laughs> it at all. And it's like... Freaking Bigfoot is in the back of the shot here. We haven't addressed it. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Made out of chocolate. Made out of chocolate milk. Yeah. Made out of chocolate. And the the Coca-Cola bottle is sitting right next to him. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, by the way, I just want to say for our listeners who can't see what we're seeing, I mean, Linda has set the camera such that we can, we get a view into her studio and various works. And above her, her left shoulder, I think, is, is truly a, uh, a Sasquatch, <laughs> a, a brown Sasquatch. He's like, he's like 48 inches tall. Yeah. Um, he's a pretty good replica. I saw, found him at an antique mall, outdoor antique mall, of course, before COVID. He's a pretty good replica of uh, what might be considered the, the passage point between what ancient man and modern man. Right. He's is well, he's a, the last ancient man that lives in the forest. Right. So why the hell wouldn't he be Mexican, too? Yeah, he is. He's why the hell wouldn't he? Right. <laughs> he's a man of color. There's no doubt about it. There's no ins and outs about it. And so he's funny, but he's, you know, anthropological, too, because, you know, now they're up. They're up earthing all of this study that's being done, anthropological study that's being done in the Americas right now. They are finding thousands of new sites. They are finding all kinds of corn from thousands and thousands of years ago. All of the all of the historical lines of where Latinos came from, uh, how long we've been in the continent, what our contributions have been to the world, have yeah. been just sort of never really investigated until just recently because a lot of uh, the photography, the, yeah. the photography that can be done, the sort of the X-ray photography, the aerial photography. Yeah, there's so much left to be told about the Americas and the people of the Americas and what we offer to the whole world. And so I thought it was kind of funny to just kind of up-earth that part and begin that conversation. He, he's got great eyes, too. You should see him. He's got the big – he's got the perfect nose. I didn't have to change that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you for inviting me. Thank you for allowing me to speak my mind on some very interesting and what can be difficult issues for everyone to speak to and about at this time, especially. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. I'm very pleased to be a part of the show and really pleased to be here with Man One. I think this is the first time we've ever really had a chance to have a good chat. Yeah. It's about time, Essay. <laughs> it's about time. <laughs> yeah, no, and so, you know, it was awesome speaking, speak, speaking with you and learning from you always. But, you know, that's what this show, I think, is, is what I'm excited about is that we just have so many different artists in the show and I'm glad to bring my point of view to it, but I really 
I think all the viewers will be able to gain a lot of insight as to who we are, what we are, and where we are. And I think that's what this show will speak to. So I'm proud to be part of it. So thank you. Yeah, art really can speak to the mix. It really can offer up questions and answers and possibilities. And, you know, it's it's good that we get to stand up at this time and actually be cogent to the very serious conversations that are taking on place about, you know, human rights, sociopolitical issues, what environmental rights, all the things that we all have strong beliefs about. Thanks again, you guys. Been great. Yeah. You're welcome. And and you you may be happy to know that our intention is to do this show annually. We want, you know, this idea of indivisibility is as we've discussed, right? It's a, it's a tricky one. It's, it's largely aspirational. Um, and yet we all are human beings united on this planet. And it's a conversation that is evergreen and that should never stop. And so we want this show to be an annual show. And I hope that both of you will consider coming back next year as well. Well, if you like Brown, you can always have me around. <laughs> well, come on down. <laughs> I like Brown, so come on down. Um, yeah, welcome back, buddy. Yeah, that, by, by the way, with that, we should probably end it. Uh, All right. You have a beautiful day, both of you. Many thanks uh, of gratitude for your time. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Take care. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld. If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 artist grant at NotRealArt.com. Sourdough, out.